Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we are recording from the exhibit hall of AOC 2022. We are bringing you a special episode each day, taking a closer look at this concept of an EMSO playbook that is the theme of the show here this week. I think the EMSO playbook is a good way to think about all the capabilities Uh, elements uh, and how they integrate together, uh, all the capabilities, the people, the training, everything that we need to have for EMS superiority. And as I've said before, EMS superiority is really the backbone to mission success across all domains. So it's an important discussion to really understand the big picture and and everything that goes in and and really try not to leave anything out in our discussion. So to help me with that here today, I have a good friend and colleague, John Knowles. He is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance. He has been a regular guest here on From the Crow's Nest, and I appreciate having him back here for this first episode here at the convention, just to talk a little bit about what we're hearing on the EMSO playbook here this week and what are some of the themes and topics that we expect to cover over the next few days and, and what does it mean for our community. So welcome to From the Crow's Nest, John. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Ken. It's great to be back here. It's been a long time since uh been here, so it's great. Yeah, we, we've only been able to record virtually here uh, over the last uh, year or so we've been doing this, so it's uh, good to sit down and, and, and chat with you in person. Um, to, basically, to get started, you know, I, I was, I was going to pull a prank on you a little bit and just say, you know, like, give me your thoughts and just <laughs> let, let you go off for, for about 30 minutes and make my job a lot easier. But, um, you know, I, I think the best way is to really kind of uh, you know, start from the beginning of what we're de- what we're dealing with here. Uh, you know, this is the first day, so we're only at the front end of some of these conversations. Uh, but we've already had a few good ones on the international perspective. Um, and so, you know, given the situation over in Ukraine, um, you know, we had uh, uh, NATO Transformation Command speak to us early this morning uh, to kick us off, as well as um, uh, the uh, Artificial Intelligence Office in, in DoD. So, I want to kind of touch on two of those those two seemingly disparate topics, but we'll try to weave them together. But let's speak from an international big picture perspective. Um, oftentimes when we talk about MSO, it's kind of US focused, but there's a huge uh, piece of this that's obviously we have to deal with now with, you know, how does that, what does that mean from NATO's perspective? And I wanted to know, get your thoughts on, on that to start. Yeah, so I think that having the first speaker uh, in, uh, from uh, NATO uh, this morning was excellent. The The when I when I first heard the topic uh, theme for the NATO, oh, sorry, the the EMSO playbook, I I really my first thought was okay, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, U.S. and and, and my immediately though I thought there there's multiple I don't know if you'd say multiple playbooks or multiple pages into the playbook and they're not just U.S. pages, they're not just we're not just looking at a U.S. playbook we. We have NATO partners, we have security partners in the U.S. That, and, and, and again, around the world. 
And so, again, it's an international community, international profession. Uh, and so when I think about the, the, uh, the playbook or the playbook concept, I think first being an editor of a magazine, you know, what about language? Are we, are we speaking the same, are we using the same terms? And do they mean, what do they mean to our partners in the middle of a conflict? And, and so uh, some of our basic U.S. terminology isn't quite aligned with NATO um, and in, in when we speak uh, in the heat of uh, conflict in the, in the middle of an operation, or when you need to make split-second decisions, are we, are we literally going to be talking the same language in a conflict? And I think back to uh, an anecdote I heard from, a, from another German general, actually German Air Force general, um, back at uh, AOC Europe show in um, Berlin. And he made this point about Libya, and he said... When uh, when a particular threat came up, that uh, it was a, it was an erroneous threat, uh, but they thought there was like a double digit threat that popped up, which wasn't in Libya at the time. And uh, and he in the U.S. said, "Oh, we're going to get that uh, with some electronic attack," and and we were referencing uh, growlers, but to them it was they they didn't understand necessarily. So basically, what happened was everybody got out of the airspace <laughs> really fast. Um, but there was just a language break because they don't think about, they don't have support jammers. And so they were, they know that we have them and, and we use them, um, but they weren't sure if that was a lethal seed, uh, you know, some, some sort of harm or something like that. So they, it was just an interesting, uh, you know, point that, that when we speak in our language and our terminology, our partners aren't necessarily schooled in that. Mm-hmm. And if NATO start, you know, another NATO nation starts using NATO terminology, how well schooled are we in that? So how do you how do you begin to address that? Because I mean, we've talked uh, the the issue of lexicon, and it's complicated enough even within the U.S. I mean, we have issues of are we are the services speaking the same language when we when we talk about this? Um, does it go to training, or does it go to you know we we talk about the services here, you know, man training equipped for the joint force, and then the joint force obviously has to uh, you know integrate with the the international with the with NATO forces and so forth. So is it is it a theater training issue? Uh, that needs to be more addressed, or what do you think are some of the possible solutions or ways to address that that lexicon problem overseas? I think a lot of it is going to where it fundamentally comes into play is in operations, and so I think you need in the coalition training. You, it, the coalition training should be pushing out the need for a common terminology, uh, it, it, in in so that you don't have situations again like the Libya thing wasn't a big deal, but it was because the threat. It was just an erroneous threat, but but the threats over in Ukraine are real, are real <laughs> and, and much more advanced, and you probably have less decision time to deal with that miscommunication. Exactly, and so and so that's the thing about EW is it's evolved. It, it's it, it's actually got a. It's amazing how much common terminology we have and common understanding in the West. But at the same time, it's not perfect, and mm-hmm. that's what that's what happens in operations. So I think it it comes out of out of coalition training, and it comes out of, um, from there, you know, if you're, if you're having communication problems in a training session, uh, training, uh, training uh, exercise, um, you need to start working on, your, on, on that there. And then it rolls up into doctrine and language and things like that across the countries. But if, if we're going to, I think Ukraine to me is, is a very significant conflict in many ways, but it, it, it's showing like Europe, uh, 
uh, that that we're going to be fighting as a coalition, and and we need to we need to definitely nobody no football team has a playbook where the different pages have different languages on them. <laughs> so so you know. From the NATO perspective, you know, we're, we're adapting to the conflict. We're learning to work together. Um, progress is being made. You know, there, there's, some, there's some good, you can, you can see some good trends happening on that front. Um, the, other, the other theater, of course, then is the Pacific. Um, NATO's not there. So are there lessons that we can learn that we can export to our partners in the Pacific? Or how does, I mean, it's one thing to learn a lesson over there, but the, the reality is that with the global, uh, the, the evolving global threats. I mean, we could have be having two theater uh, effort going on at the same time. And, and how do we take one lesson and, and learn it in a different theater with different partners and different uh, ally constructs? Mm-hmm. Um, any, any thoughts on, on, on how we take what we've learned from NATO here in looking at Europe and, and apply it to, to the Pacific theater? Well, it's interesting because NATO is, is a multi-layered partnership. And so you've got, you've got government to government, you've got military to military, and then even at the industrial level, industrial base level, you've got teams and partnerships um, and, 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 and international defense organizations. That is less so the case. It's not, so it's not just, I guess when I, my point is, NATO is very multi-layer and thick, uh, and, and we sometimes forget like we just take it for granted it's, how how rich it is. It's, and, a, it's also its own bureaucracy that kind of allows all that to come together. The, all yeah. that to come together. That process and hey, they have established you know relationships and so forth. Exactly, and and I think that in 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 the Pacific Asia Pacific region, it's very um, it's a it's it's much less complex, obviously, in terms of bureaucracy, but that's kind of a bad thing in, in many ways because the U.S. is the glue that holds a lot of that together. And so it's really more of like a hub-and-spoke kind of model where the U.S. is going to have a lot more of a burden on it um, because partners aren't necessarily going to be... Um, it's it's going to be bilateral, but like off... You know, it's going to be one-to-one relationships with each country versus getting all those countries to work together, uh, especially in a conflict if it happened very soon. Because again, there, there is no NATO. And I guess my point is, um, in some ways, the U.S. is going to be the hub of that. But in other ways, it's going to be a problem to not have multilateral communication and multilateral training and things like that. So they're starting to get better about it. Um, but but it's, it's here and there. It's not a, it's not a formal... Um, it's not a formal alliance. I'm not, they've never had that over there and they don't have obviously a single cultural identity the way Europe did. So it's a little harder to probably build a NATO. Um, but the U.S. will be in more of a central role over there and that will create some advantages for us as the U.S. I shouldn't say us, but some advantages for the U.S. But it will create a lot of tensions and problems as well because country... A, if that's the USA, can work with country B or country C or country D directly, but country B, C, and D may not work, work, work together at all, and that's hard to make an alliance or a coalition out of that. So, so you know, from an industry perspective, it's one of the things that one of the great aspects that, of your job, and you know, through the journal Electromagnetic Dominance um, that you you, you edit, um, you know, you take a look at kind of how the market is responding to the, this global change that's happening, you know, the threats and so forth. And what does it mean for 
uh, the global defense electronics market. Um, how is industry responding to some of these uh, challenges of integration across country, across you know services and domains and so forth? How how how's the market responding? It's obviously doing very well here at you know by virtue of of what's going on here at, at AOC 2022. But um, what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Uh, industry take the lead on to to address some of these challenges? So I think industry is doing a good job of trying to find partnerships where they can, um, where they make sense. Again, there's usually, uh, there's almost always a, a uh, some of the, the, the uh, groundwork has been laid out at a military to military and government to government level. Um, but, but there is sort of a, a, if you do it right on the military side, you can get a certain amount of interoperability uh, just by virtue of buying the same platforms with the same software on it or very similar, you know, software uh, uh, on there. So, example, F-35. You know, that's, it's, it, it, F-16 was really the, the first one to say, hey, we, we have a lot of interoperability in F-16. Uh, we're all buying the same platform, maintaining it. Um, they have a, not the same EW, but they have a lot of common EW in there, common radar, at least, you know, and you can get the rest of the standards kind of working together. So, um, even the data links and things like that. So again, you you can you can do that. I, I think that NATO has been more successful than Asia Pacific countries at that. But at the end of the day, the industrial base is where kind of the rubber meets the road on all those plans. And so they they have to have incentives to work together mm-hmm. and to and to um, work on supply chains and things like that together. And so I think that like F thirty five is the next incarnation of that. Um, but with the F-35, it's, it's not its own thing. You need the entire, you know, ISR command control layer above that to get the whole sensor to shooter network to make the F-35 effective. Um, and that's where interoperability and things like that also come in is, is, is it's not just buying like a, uh, it's not just buying a particular weapons platform. It's buying a whole constellation of them uh, that work together and then working with maybe you don't have an airborne early warning aircraft or airborne command and control aircraft like an AWACS, so you've got to work with a partner who's feeding you radar tracks, even though that 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 AWACS type aircraft is not available mm-hmm. in your, you know, it's not yours, it's not in your country. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do 
uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products that benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So you know, one, one of the themes that we keep hearing about, you know, this gets to the point you're, you're talking about, like, you know, getting the right system in, into the field. So we, we were talking earlier about, you know, innovation. It's, it's a great buzzword. You, know, you say the word innovation and all of a sudden people are like, oh, absolutely, we need innovation. Um, but we also don't always look at it as, you know, you, have, you can innovate new things that you bring to the field that are bright, bright shiny objects, great new capability. But then there's also the innovation of how you optimize what you currently have. Um, is, is from a market perspective, from an industry perspective, um, you know, how is industry kind of helping the defense agencies, US, DOD, as well as others, um, to figure out, okay, when we, we need to innovate, but we need to optimize what we have versus new capability and, and helping these defense agencies pick and choose how to, how to go about that with an innovation mindset. Mm -hmm. So I think that one of the things that's happened over the past I guess I'd almost say a decade, uh, is there's a, there's a lot more um, experimentation in the field uh, where it's kind of a bring, you know, a call to industry, bring what you have. We have test equipment or we have a test, uh, some, sort of, some sort of evaluation that we can set up at one of the ranges in the U.S. or something like that. So bring, bring what you have. And, 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 and to me, at least, the magic in that is having the industry experts, the technical experts working directly with operational people because those two, when they get together, mm -hmm. they're going to solve problems. The operator's really good at, say, you know, taking something that was built to do one job and, and modifying it in some way or using it in a different way that the, that the developer didn't think of. So that cross-pollinization there, that's huge uh, in terms of... of uh, Getting those ideas out there and getting and getting that that what I call like what you call innovation, I kind of call it operational innovation yeah. to a certain extent. It's you know what you don't you don't uh, you don't 
you don't have five, 10 years to develop what you need. So you got to go with what you have. I call it your sort of Apollo 13 moment. You know, here's your box full of stuff that's on that, you know, that you have to work with. And I, th I think it also it, it helps with operational relevance too, that, you know, you can have a great technology, but if it's not usable in the field in the heat, in the heat of battle, mm -hmm. if either you don't know how to use it or it maybe interferes with something or it just doesn't actually function in a way or in response to the way an adversary might be uh, attacking, uh, then it's not, it's not useful. So getting that warfighter kind of embedded earlier in development can kind of weed out some of that and make what you bring to the field actually work a little bit better or in what they need. Um, so when we talk with, uh, so the, the other aspect of, of this morning's show, uh, when we kicked off, we, we went from international and uh, we switched gears to talk about uh, artificial intelligence and, and uh, uh, machine learning algorithmic warfare, which is a word that I hope I don't have to say too often here <laughs> on, 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 on the podcast. I said it right there. Um, but, you know, I, th I think it's interesting because when we talk, um, you know, adaptability and agility of systems, you know, a lot of that gets into the software, gets into the, you know, the software standards that we're using and the language, of course, the algorithms uh, that really basically break everything down to, to, to a code that, makes a system respond or work the way it needs to um, and learn on the fly. So we were talking earlier about the lexicon, the language between people. You also now have this notion of this language between machines um, and the algorithms that are used in the software. Uh, how do you see algorithmic warfare? Um, how do you see the path that algorithmic warfare is on from the U.S. perspective and, of course, then from a coalition perspective of... of the, in terms of what opportunities are in that space uh, for for improving how we conduct uh, MSO. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I have sort of a, a love-hate relationship with terms like algorith algorithmic warfare, See, but I also yeah. can't speak that term. Um, and the reason is because when you, when you talk about algorithmic warfare or digital warfare or any of that, you sort of you, to me at least, it's, 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 it's overly reducing the the what's important down to just technology or algorithms or it's it's the same thing with electronic warfare and why we made the shift to electromagnetic warfare electronic warfare was named for a box and that in that term electronic warfare in my opinion saddled our community with everyone thinking that we were just about the box and if i just throw enough money into the into the Coke machine, the Coke machine is going to give me a box, right? Mm -hmm. And that's all I have to worry about. I don't have to worry about people and, and, and leadership and organizations and all the rest of the dot mill PF that makes that, it's everything working together, right? And so when you go to algorithmic warfare, you're reducing it beyond the box. Now you're just down to code, right? Now it's just, it's, it's, it's programmer warfare or whatever you want to call it. And so in that sense, I, 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 like, I don't want to reduce further I, the reason I like the shift from electronic warfare to electromagnetic warfare is because electromagnetic warfare is about responsibility, operational responsibility for a domain or mm -hmm. at least a, a maneuver space, a strategic maneuver space. And so, so we don't have F-22 warfare. We don't have missile warfare, air-to-air -air missile warfare, AM-9X warfare, any of that stuff. We have air warfare because that's the operational responsibility for that space, for that, that domain. So when we invent new terms like algorithmic warfare, we're actually getting further down that rabbit hole of, of, of technology is the answer to everything. And if I just worry about technology, 
it solves all my other problems. I'm going to put all my money there. That's one side of my Jekyll and Hyde. You know, the other side of it is if that's the term we have to use, things like algorithmic warfare, digital warfare, to emphasize the importance of this to leadership, it's a, it's a, again, not an ideal message, but if it gets the job done, if that's the only way to get people to invest in AI and understand the strategic importance of AI investment and things like that, then, you know, so be it. I guess that's just the way it's going to be. But, but I just hate to lose track of the idea that, that, that this is fundamentally about an operational responsibility, operational capabilities, operational decision-making. A playbook is not a technology playbook. It's, a, it's an operational playbook, yeah. right? MSO playbook should be about EMS operations, not EMS technology playbook. Those are roadmaps and technology roadmaps and things like that. So for me, that's just my two cents on algorithmic warfare yeah. is I'd like to see us talk about the importance of AI as a community without having to elevate the technology to a level by use tagging the term warfare on it that gives it significance that it doesn't really have in the, in the, in the stack of things we worry about. So I don't know if that's, it, you know. And that's good because I think, you know, one of the things we, we've talked about a lot about is even just looking at the role of, pe- of people training a lot. There's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of components to, to operations that, you know, even from AEW's perspective, we've, we've oftentimes struggled with a lack of funding or lack of attention to. And we've oftentimes seen where the issue isn't technology. Like we have the best technology out there today and we've always have for generations. But as we're even seeing over in Russia and Ukraine, it's not just the technology they have, it's how you use it, how it works in a command and control environment um, and so forth. So, um, you know, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of promise there. I think it's, it, it's, it's amazing, but at the end of the day, the algorithms are not, you know, it might be made through machine learning, but there's always a person behind there at some point. And um, you still have to make sure that those people understand exactly what they're, what they're contributing to in terms of the bigger picture or the bigger capability. Um, you talked about operational responsibility and domains, and, and I'm going to use this as probably one of the most unnatural transitions. <laughs> but, um, you know, one, you know look, looking at the uh, JED, uh, the monthly JED, the one here that uh, is being distributed at the show, I wanted to bring you on to also talk about that a little bit because the key feature is uh, space. And, you know, so when you talk about operational responsibility in space, uh, you have the, the Space Delta Three Guardians, uh, an article on that, a, uh, a feature on that. So I wanted you to um, tell us a little bit about this, this article as, and what does that mean in terms of the context of this EMSO playbook? And, you know, it's, it's a relevant article for this show and, and explain, because we will be talking space later, in the, later this week. Um, but give us some insight into what went into this article and what are some of the lessons you pull out for both military as well as industry. Sure. So, so I love that there's a space force. I think that's an absolutely, again, to me, domains exist because they're, uh, they're strategic and they're physical maneuver spaces for the most part, or at least some sort of maneuver space. And so, so space qualifies both in both those categories it's overdue, uh, the recognition. Um, it, it's, if you thought about it in the past, you know, we, we thought of space and we just thought of satellites. Mm-hmm. We didn't think about contested space, or we did. If we did, it was, it was not, again, in that whole .mil PF enterprise type concept. And now Space Command has come along and they've really said, you know, look, we're not just a bunch of boxes that get launched into space, right? Uh, and so, and so they, they've really thought about contested space and, and how, you know, how we're going to do that. And I think of 
I, the delineation I make is 21st century warfare versus 20th century warfare. 20th century warfare, the big thrusts were air, land, sea, uh, sea right? And, and so you, you, you think about, okay, World War II, Vietnam, whatever it was, the conflict was less about uh, what becomes important in 21st century warfare, which is in addition to air, land, sea, space, not replacing them, but what kind of glues them together in a joint environment, in a, in a coalition, whatever, what glues those things together, in my mind at least, is, is cyber, space, and electromagnetic spectrum. So you, you could fight in the 20, 20th century without really focusing on those last three things. But in the 21st century, the air warfare, naval warfare, land warfare, only really gain credibility or gain, you know, they're, they're only going to be, a, you're going to win or lose in there because of space, cyber, and electromagnetic spectrum operations. And so space is a critical piece of that. It's one of those things, it shares a lot in common with EW because you don't really see space. You, you know, you can maybe look up in your night sky at, at sunset or just after sunset and see satellites going overhead. But you just don't think about getting information from point A to point B, especially for a force like the United States where you're projecting power globally. Even, even look at Ukraine, right? Look at how important Starlink is to them. What did Russia go attack the first week, you know, first few weeks of the war, they attacked Starlink because they knew that was a command and control communications system that, that, that the Ukrainian forces were using and still are. And so, so to me, space is this, again, strategic maneuver space and you really have to, and it's of, of all the domains, it's the most dependent on electromagnetic spectrum. You, you can't go up into space and tweak something. You're mm-hmm. delivering code up there, you know, with with, with satellite communication. So you're you're looking at, you know, high dependence on the EMS more than any other domain, I think. And so, so again, and you, you just can't go to war even in your even inside your own borders. You can't go to war without space. Mm-hmm. And so that's just how ubiquitous it's becoming for us. So, so to me, I think it's just a really important, you know field and I, I emso is a huge piece of that and we're going to spend a lot of time in jet going forward fleshing that out in training and all the aspects that they're going to need to flesh it out um, so what what is the uh, what are some of the upcoming editions I obviously this was the October one mm-hmm. on space but uh, monthly publication what's what's on the horizon then um, so the November jet I actually wrote the cover story for that uh, the feature story for that. And that is uh, talking to the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing down in Eglin. And that, to me, was, it was a great interview with Colonel Josh Kozlov. And he, uh, very dynamic leader, very, like, like, perfect person to follow on from, from Colonel Young, from Dollar. Uh, and and the, the, w- that's one of those things that I'm going to keep watching them because where they're going is, to me, it's not perhaps completely unique to what uh, other, other parts of the EW community are doing, but it is, it is from where the Air Force was. When, you know, we spent years talking about how's the Air Force really going to rejuvenate and, and get, get its EW mission back to where it needs to be in a, in a peer competitor type environment uh, world with a lot of competition, that they have an idea of digital services. EW is a digital service. So they're taking their mission data, uh, you know, the old 53rd uh, EW group, and they're changing what they do, but then they're adding to that with these new digital services. So it's, it's, I don't want to liken it to, you know, your smartphone and anything, but they have a, they have a, a mission app, uh, tactical app system. They have missionware, which is like apps. Um, they're really thinking about how to get capability out fast through software. They're, they understand that. 
uh, how to how to get bypass the the non-standard interfaces between two different weapon systems. So they're using things like stitches. They did a thing called Project 212. They are, to me, showing the very beginning of showing us what EW is going to look like in 10, 15 years. They're doing it really fast. They're reorganizing for that. So they're, they're, they're getting rid of their stovepipe sort of industrial era arc, you know, architecture that they had of the way they were set up. Um, and they're just, they're, 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 they're very smart. They're very focused on what they want to do, but, but like, stay tuned in f- any time that, that they do something, take a look at what it is because mm-hmm. it's probably going to be something that it's not only what they're doing, it's different, but how they're doing it. And it's, it's going to be very software oriented organization, which I think going back to, again, AI and everything, they're, they're just, they're, they're a really interesting nerve center for the Air Force, um, right people at the right time too. Great. Well, well, thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for uh, today's episode. I want to thank you for once again joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. Uh, may try to pull you back in uh, at a later time to kind of get your wrap-up thoughts here because I think it's, you know, it's, it's hard to speak right at the front end of the show when you haven't heard every, everything. But, you know, we've, we've been around long enough that we can kind of understand what, what's going on here. Uh, but it's always great to talk with you and uh, look forward to uh, continuing our conversation out the week. Uh, thanks for having me on. I always enjoy this. Thanks, right. Ken. Well, that will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. Uh, Again, we're going to be bringing you a special episode each day this week. I want to thank my guest today, John Knowles, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance. Tomorrow, I have a special guest, Dave Tremper, from the Office of Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment to talk a little bit about EW program, acquisition, development, innovation. And then on Thursday... I sit down with our keynote speaker, Dr. Eric Hasseltine, who is an author, futurist, former intelligence uh, officer with the NSA. Uh, He has a couple books out that we'll be talking about, focusing on innovation and how do you innovate in a bureaucracy. So a couple of other good uh, guests coming up here in future episodes and hope that you'll be able to to download those and listen to those. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, John Knowles, for joining me today. Uh, As always, we'd like to hear from our audience. So please rate, subscribe wherever you download your podcast. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs.